Welcome to Politics Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. On today's show, I continue my conversation about technology and society with Ohio State University Professor Dr. Nancy Etlinger. I am. I have Dr. Edlinger here again today. Dr. Nancy Edlinger is a professor of critical human geography at Ohio State University, and I'm continuing my interview with her about her book, Algorithms and the Assault on Critical Thought. Welcome back, Dr. Edlinger. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to be back with you. I'm going to try to pick up where we left off. You write about data injustice, and you point to a 2020 survey of data scientists worldwide and only 15% of the respondents said that their companies address fairness at all. And you note, as other scholars have, that the technological efficiency of smart cities, for example, is only smart for the white and largely middle and upper class people there, and it largely leaves lower income and persons of color behind. You also posit that concerns about inequality and social justice are largely excluded from the technology industry and argue that tech firms hire largely heterosexual white men who design algorithms and data-driven systems that adversely affect LGBTQ people, women, differently abled persons, obviously people of color. And these job requirements are such that they deal with machines and they don't really have to address inequality or any issues related to human social interactions. I know that was a lot, but can you just clarify this? Sure. I think I think the problem is a matter of general perspective, which happens to be convenient insofar as the perspective of choice enables rapidity and maximizes profit. The perspective I'm referring to is a technocratic perspective, which adheres to the notion that technology can fix things. It can fix anything. The problem is that technology is not neutral. In the absence of diversity in tech workplaces that would expand the frame of reference of lived experience, for example, Technology is developed by people who have biases, and those biases implicitly get baked into algorithms. So consider, for example, the case of automated soap dispensers developed by white people, notably white men. These dispensers cannot recognize hands with more pigment than exists on a white hand, with the consequence, of course, that hygiene in public restrooms is unavailable to persons of color. Another source of AI bias is a bias is the biased world in which we live. It is Past, race, gender, sexualized, aged, and so on. And the training data from which computers learn come from the real world without being contextualized. Big data analyses are based on correlations, not causality. And these correlations would require contextualization and explanation that is not available in a big data analysis. So accordingly, correlation among race, poverty, and crime, for example, then signifies that marginalized populations often are denied credit and they often are criminalized based on these correlations. Right. And I just, this soap dispenser thing is just really elucidates this for me. Most of us just don't think about this. And I'm sure the people designing this didn't think about it. And if they Mm. had more people of color on the teams, maybe they would. It sort of reminds me during COVID when people were measuring oxygen, the machines didn't work well on people of color and they had to do an additional test. And NPR interviewed this, this physician who was African American and her son almost died because of this. And so she sort of raised alarms, but the, you know, the largely Caucasian people didn't think about it. I think it's good that you bring 
all of this up. And, you know, to this point, sociologists Orr and Davis conducted a study and they interviewed the creators of this content. I'm just going to quote something that they said, quote, we are a technology provider, so we don't make those decisions. It's the same as someone who builds guns for a living. You provide the gun to the guy who shoots and kills someone, but you just did your job. So is no one taking responsibility and and could new laws help ameliorate this? Well, I think that laws would render uh, that would render producers liable for the effects of what they produce would be helpful. And Congress is now trying to regulate big tech, yet progress is slow and the process appears ineffective. A major problem is that big tech governs the big the digital world and further provides services. I'm thinking of AWS, Amazon Web Services, for example, which the government uses. So it's difficult for the government to regulate a company whose services they rely on. I just heard on the BBC that the European Union is passing some of these regulations. And because these are global companies, the only way we might have some of this regulation in the United States is because the EU takes the lead. Right. So yes, European countries are are far ahead of the United States regarding regulations on uh, technology. However, most of the European regulations on technology are in the area of privacy which is just one part of the larger issue of ethics. So European countries themselves have a long way to go, but they certainly have done uh, more than the United States. Now, as European countries regulate big tech firms from the United States, those same firms are still going to do what they had planned on doing in the United States until the United States regulates them. So I personally support regulations on big tech, but I am doubtful that they will cover all that they need to cover and that they will be in the long run effective and meaningful. And most people in Congress just are not real tech savvy. They've had hearings and some of them don't know anything about it. So they need to, to have staff that has technical expertise. And I think they are working on that. So in chapter four, you write about what you refer to as the normal science of the data sciences and its governance. So people often focus on technology in a vacuum and you make the case that technology is part of larger society. In 2018, artificial intelligence scholar Martin Ford interviewed several experts in AI, and you had this in your book. And I'm going to just mention two quotes from people he interviewed for his book and ask for you to react to this. So he interviewed Jeffrey Hinton, who is often referred to as the godfather of AI. He was also high up in Google. And Hinton, as I understand it, Hinton left Google earlier this year so he could talk about the dangers of AI as kind of a whistleblower. Here's what Hinton said. Quote, people are looking at technology as if the technological advances are the problem. The problem is the social system, end quote. And robotics and MIT emeritus professor told Ford, quote, the place where regulation is required is on what these systems are and are not allowed to do, not on the technologies that underlie them. Can you just respond to this? Sure. Uh, I think that the view that both these scholars are 
have presented is, is a technocratic view that separates technology from society, culture, economy, politics, and the environment. And this truth enables AI scientists to go to sleep at night. As you point out, just recently, Jeffrey Hinton quit his job at Google to speak freely about his deep concerns for humanity following the advent and then the fervor surrounding generative AI, specifically ChatGPT. In addition, the CEO of the company that produced ChatGPT, ironically, is now begging Congress to regulate his company as well as other companies. So despite the recognition in the AI community that they may have produced a Frankenstein, it remains unclear if they have adjusted their set of truths and whether their new concerns will affect the methods they produce. Now I want to talk about chapter five. You devote chapter five to communitarianism. And broadly, your book refers to a loss of personal agency, less critical thought and worsening of inequalities. And you argue in chapter five that we cannot rely on institutions to solve these problems. And the only solutions I see to this are the people doing things like going off Twitter. But of course, with the collective action problem, I think it precludes this. So the obvious solution to me, which you've alluded to, is government regulation. But which government? A DeSantis government? A Supreme Court government that seems to oppose any regulation? Or a Senator Elizabeth Warren government? I think the latter would be the best. But one government could have excellent safeguards and regulations, and the next one could eviscerate it all. Um, And it was just occurred to me that maybe a whole new agency like we did with Homeland Security might work. But what is your response to putting responsibility on people? And how do we get people mobilized to petition the government? And do you think that we could have some sort of government regulation? Well, first of all, I think people have been mobilizing in a big way. So as you pointed out, there's now Jeffrey Hinton became a a whistleblower and he's actually part of a huge whistleblower movement among tech firms. Consider also Black Lives Matter and their protests, which following George Floyd's murder, which reverberated across cities and as well as towns across the United States and worldwide. And then there's Me Too and time the Time's Up movement. So I think that while admittedly there are many people out there who are complacent, many others are angry and are doing something about their anger. Yet I don't think the government has responded in a meaningful way. And so while at the outset, the conventional response is we need more government regulations The problem is, is while I support all of these movements that are making demands on the part of the government, I am not holding my breath for (laughs) the government or firms to to do the right thing. And furthermore, politicians that are making the rules are themselves embroiled in oppositional politics that deals less with the issues and more about scoring points against uh, against the other team. And so and so while I support regulation, I don't have much faith in it. Right. And you don't have to answer this, but this is just Bill thinking out loud. You know, I I never could have imagined that things like mask use and um, vaccinating oneself would have become a red blue polarizing issue. And I'm just wondering would, will this become a blue-red Democrat versus Republican issue? And I'm just wondering which side which would be on. Yeah, that's a, well, I think that's a great question. It's hard to tell what's going to be, what's going to happen in 10 years. And so some of the work that I'm started work started after I finished my book is actually about the development of fascism in the United States. And so 
what things are going to look like in 10 years from now, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but I am, I am very concerned about the direction in which, in which they are going. And certainly the electorate has shifted. So it used to be that the working class voted Democrat. And now the working class feels abandoned by the Democrats and they are voting Republican. While, while Democrats have attracted what some people have called the credentialed class. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's the, the shift in voting patterns has been quite remarkable. Dr. Barney Worf, who is a fellow human geographer, who I know you know well, he talked about this when I interviewed him last week about how Democrats aren't reaching out to rural America and they're voting against their own self-interest. And, you know, this is a whole nother podcast. But I just I was just wondering, like, maybe politicians react to things, you know, they talk about gun violence after someone is killed and they tend not to be proactive. So I imagine it just will play out in terms of if something happens, you know, if Donald Trump likes something that AI says about him and he tweets to his followers, we love AI. I mean, I know that sounds kind of haphazard, but that's kind of how things work lately. I think that the abandonment of the working class by the Democratic Party has a lot to do with the evolution of production systems and the decline of the middle class. Most, uh, I mean, it's common knowledge that most poor people don't vote, most rural people don't vote. So those are all the people that the Trump campaign, along with Cambridge Analytica, went after. It wasn't that the Trump campaign was so smart and Cambridge Analytica was so smart that out of a vacuum, out of the blue, they all of a sudden developed this, this strategy, but rather these people were just sitting there waiting for somebody like Trump to come along because right. of the road that had been already paved through, through social media and through radio broadcasters like Rush Limbaugh before, uh, right. before social media. Barney and I talked about that. And I actually wasn't going to talk about this today, but since you brought it up, I feel like a lot of this is Democratic elites because you're in Ohio and there was a Senate candidate who was a Democrat. I forget his name. He was running for Senate and he lost by a few points. And he said afterwards when he was interviewed that the National Democratic Party didn't send him any money. They've given up on Ohio. And he said yes. he was just down by a couple of points and he thinks he could have won and that they shouldn't just give up on Ohio. So and they're kind of giving up on Florida. I mean, do you think that this is part of the problem? Yes, I think that the first of all, I think that the Democratic Party is playing by old rules <laughs> and they haven't figured out that uh I think that the major issue is this. Things are so polarized. And while Democrats were jumping up and down for joy at the at the apparent success of the, the recent midterm elections, they really weren't talking about the really problematic situation in which the country is basically about 50-50. But they just happened to slip by in the 20 in the midterm elections. And so when you've got that kind of extreme polarization, it's the swing voters. It's the people who nobody has paid any attention to who are going to make the difference in the next election. You, you talked about ethics when I interviewed you last week and the context of education. In all aspects of technology use, you argue that ethics takes a backseat to efficiency. And a, a casualty of this is that inequality is just not addressed. 
And there is also just less critical thinking about the social world that we live in. Can you speak to this issue of ethics and what we can do about it, if anything? And can you talk about communitarianism and how it would work in the context of technology? Yeah, thanks. Let me start out by talking about just communitarianism, and then then we can shift to digitalized versions. But uh, from a communitarian perspective, the goal is not to get government to act on your demands, but rather to develop a community that avoids reliance on government or on firms. Uh, it is a DIY mentality at the scale of a community that strives for self-provisioning through cooperative networks and democratic governance to deliver solidarity and relative autonomy. One extraordinary example is the Mondragon Cooperative in Spain. It began in the 1950s in the context of poverty and unemployment and grew into an industrial complex that has remained intact to the present. I was thrilled when I saw in your book that you mentioned Mondragon, the cooperative in Spain. Outside of some cooperative bakeries and bike shops in Berkeley, California, and a few scatterings of worker and businesses in the United States and Europe, there's really nothing to compare to Mondragon in the U.S. It's essentially, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, it's essentially a worker-owned communitarian company in Spain. And so people work cooperatively through participatory governance. I think to me, it seems like a very different kind of, of governance model. But I'll give you an example, a very, that, that many people might be familiar with, even if they never have thought of the word communitarianism. And that is uh, community gardens in cities. So sometimes community gardens represent a self-provisioning food system for community. And sometimes the produce is sold in other higher paying communities. So this latter type of case is interesting. On the one hand, selling in higher paying communities delivers revenue, which may or may not be redistributed in the community. And that is a matter of, of the nature of governance. And so the spirit of communitarianism in this latter case may have prompted the development of a community garden, but governance is a complex matter and it doesn't always come out the other end that way. So there's many, many projects that, that start out in it with a communitarian spirit, but then they, they became, co they become co-opted into mentalities of self-interest, of, 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 of individuals gaining profit as opposed to funneling and redistributing revenue back into a community or in the case of producing food, you know, keeping it with inside, inside of the community. Are you talking um, about, I'm sorry to interrupt, but are you talking about like right. how these, C, I mean, I go to a CSA and it, they've turned into these bougie white people. Yeah, that's right. Is yeah. that what you're talking about? And these farmers yeah, markets that's right. that sell expensive soap? Yeah. So some of these community gardens are, as you say, they're very, very bougie. And the reason why is because they have a captive market in more inexpensive communities, which are not the places where the produce was grown in the first place. So there's actually lots of, there's been a wide variety of types of community gardens that have been researched with different kinds of governance models. There are some community gardens that are self-provisioning, that it's a, a mechanism for self-provisioning of food within a community, but there's many other community gardens that function differently. And so in that regard, what we can see is, is that an idea get 
in the process of implementation over time can get twisted into something else. Some projects are long standing and adhere to founding principles and some do not. So I would argue that that is a governance mechanism. I just wanted to mention that there's another type of communitarianism that has been developed by activist researchers who go into struggling communities and help them to organize for self-provisioning. And so many of there are many of these projects that exist around the world, but where they exist, they exist in little pockets of, of places. Yes. And I never even thought about it, but last week you talked about how soap dispensers were sort of geared toward white people. And it just occurred to me that people who live paycheck to paycheck may not be able to afford several hundred dollars up front for a whole season, which is how the CSA that I belong to works. You have to pay a lot of money up front. And I think, you know, the people who are running it may not even be thinking about this. That's a topic. I bet they are. <laughs> okay, well, yes, that's the cynical part of this, I guess. And to this point, can new technologies be used in the service of communitarianism? And are, are there some examples? Yes. So the point of making use of new technologies is to, in effect, uh, digitalize communitarianism to be able to scale communitarian projects across space. So they're not just in little pockets here and there that nobody's ever heard of. They actually might be a way of living for many people. And so um, for self-provisioning systems, this is very complicated and prompts the need to find a way to economically support wide-ranging projects in various locations. The economic matter presents the problem of how to self-capitalize without dependence on the government or firms. And so one solution has been to develop a cryptocurrency specific to a community to fix the supply and value of the currency within the community to ensure stability and sell it at a higher price on the cryptocurrency market. The purpose of this process is then to extract capital from the mainstream market and shift value from private property in the mainstream market to a set of alternative economies spread around the world. And so what a creative idea. This this idea was implemented for a community called Fair Co-op, and its currency is called Fair Coin, which is intended to work alongside local currencies, including barter systems, as well as other cryptocurrencies and government-backed fiat currency. Another example is Enspiral, which is a very different type of communitarian enterprise. Could so unlike- that, Could you repeat oh, that term? Oh, it's called Enspiral. Spiral, E-N-S-P-I-R-A-L. Thank you. And uh, so unlike Fair Co-op, it does not aim to be a self-provisioning community. Rather, it is a consortium of professionals and, and businesses that offer business, technical information, education, and tools to individuals and startup enterprise that prioritize social over economic goals. So members of this consortium pool their resources and they make a decision to dedicate 20% of their work time to uh 
from Unitarian projects. Now, all types of digitalized uh, communitarianism require affordances of what we now call Web3. So most of us operate in a Web2.0 environment that permits interaction, as in social media, for example, just, you know, beyond the showcasing and viewing of information that characterize the initial Web 1.0. So a new affordance of, uh, for, of Web 3 is the capacity to exchange value. You can't do that on Web 2.0. Uh, to exchange value, if you exchange value, that can then allow for the development of cryptocurrencies and their use for communitarian as well as mainstream purposes. Yeah, I'd never heard of Web3. That's interesting. Well, it's it's emerged and it's and it requires a lot of tech savviness to which I don't have, by the way. Uh, to <laughs> you have more than I do. you have more than I do, I think. <laughs> to understand uh what you know all the possibilities and what's happening, but there are lots of you know the new some people have called the new companies of the metaverse are what are called decentralized autonomous organizations. And the acronym is DAO. They're called DAOs. And so there are actually, uh, there's actually quite a bit of activity on, on web three. Most of it is mainstream for profit. And, but some communitarian projects have, have recognized amazing possibilities with the affordances of web three. Like, for example, fair co-op that uh, developed its own cryptocurrency and and also and spiral which also makes use of web3 affordances to transfer and exchange value and so forth with individuals and enterprises that they support Right. The, the talking, the talking class ever uses this term. You know, we're at an inflection point in the United States. They always say we're at this fork in the road, but it does seem like we are with technology where we could go in either direction. And, you know, we've been talking about uh, financially related mm-hmm. communitarianism. I just want to share an anecdote because, um, I lived in Gainesville, Florida years ago. It's sort of a, a liberal college town and I graduated from the University of Florida. And at that time, I'm not going to say when it was. <laughs> uh, Several people were engaging in organized bartering. People would bypass ATM machines. And instead of using cash, they printed barter dollars and people priced their services and they exchanged them. And, you know, I liked it. I mean, it kind of reminded me of Bitcoin, but Bitcoin, I think, is of no value and just seems like a scam. But these bartering bills were were working for a while. You know, what would happen is... You would say you're a massage therapist, so you would offer somebody a massage, they would mow their lawn, and some farmers' markets and locally owned shops were accepting them, but there were problems, and sometimes people felt like they weren't getting, you know, a fair shake, and it was you know, it was going pretty well. And then it dwindled and then people left town and it just, unfortunately, it sort of died on the vine. But is this the kind of thing that you're talking about? And how can we better make this kind of thing more solid and sustained? Well, this system that you're talking about in Gainesville, once upon a time, really sounds interesting. And and also the problems are are unsurprising. So it shares a lot of features of Fair Co-op Faircoin, except that Faircoin, like Bitcoin, is a cryptocurrency. That is to say, it isn't printed and it can be exchanged on the cryptocurrency market in order to inject needed capital into 
FAIRCOA projects. But the what you're explaining is what people call the circular economy. You develop a new currency, you pay for a service, and that person then has has that currency, then they can use that currency to pay for not somebody else for another services. And that way, the, the currency spreads. But another difference with the Fair Co-op is that Fair Co-op also encompass many projects. And its mandate is to grow, unlike the com- community you mentioned. So it does need a way to uh, to, to continually self-capitalize. And I think that the, the community that you mentioned is also in a way similar uh, to a community garden in this in the sense that it's self-contained without without a necessary mandate to grow and it can stay localized although as we discussed some community gardens don't really stay localized it's it's not they, they don't operate as self-provisioning food systems for a community and so we get back to the same issue this is this is just such a central issue and it's governance and which is always tricky for any organization uh, whether it's digitalized or not in the case of Faircoin, its designers assumed that Faircoin's price on the external market would always increase. But when the market crashed and Faircoin's price dropped precipitously, the entire system was affected, including people's behavior. So, so for example, some people exploited the price drop by selling Faircoin on the external market for personal gain. And so, and so that just is no system is foolproof of any kind. And so it's a matter of whether or not a group of people can engage the problems and move forward if they have the willingness, if they have the material capacity, as well as the emotional capacity to engage the problems and move forward or not. In the case of Faircoin, uh, Fair Co-op and Faircoin, yes, they did. And so, you know, after the market crashed, it recovered and, and Faircoin remained, Fair Co-op and Faircoin, in fact, remain in operation. But just to to operate this sort of barter economy that you experienced in in Gainesville a number of years ago you know there are so many problems that can occur and people can people can just get tired of it individuals might decide that they want something more right and so they're not thinking if individuals begin thinking at the level of just themselves and not the community then they will go elsewhere and that will weaken the system corporations might be threatened by these communitarian practices because i mean they might help local business but they're not going to help chains who don't take the barter money or whatever so do you think that you know you mentioned faircoin you mentioned in spiral and sensorica i hope you, that i pronounce those right so do you think this is the future? Whether or not it's the future, I guess I would say that I've only mentioned a few examples and there are many more, but uh, there are also many problems that require work because while rules of government are static, real world governance is dynamic and always problematic and always in need of workarounds. So many of the problems, such as uneven power relations, lack of diversity, uh, self-centered rather than community-level thinking are, are longstanding. They have been left to fester, and it is possible that with our next step into a new technological frontier, the same problems will reemerge precisely because the problems are entrenched and require culture change if they are to be adequately addressed and if people are willing to take that step to deal with those problems. 
So we're we're about to wrap up, but before we do, is there a fundamental message or conclusion to your book, something else you would like to mention? Uh, well, yes, there is. And I'll just say it very briefly. And I, I suppose I've, I've said this before in our discussion today, but my point is that it is necessary to follow the imperative to critically think and to be vigilant about that, to to never be complacent about having designed something because the everyday of the real world following designs is infused with unanticipated problems. So this is a tall order because there's no arrival, so to speak, in with this kind of an approach. There are always challenges that require critical thought, and we cannot afford to sit back and relax. And so I think that that is it in a nutshell. I think that's a great, we can't afford to sit back and relax. I think that's a great place to end. We'll wrap up this topic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Edlinger, for taking time out of your busy schedule for being here today. Well, thank you. I very much appreciate it. Pleasure. We welcome your feedback. Please follow the show on Twitter at PoliticsCons. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others.